Hello and welcome to On Mission, a podcast from the Catholic Apostolate Center. My name is Chris Pierno, and I'm joined tonight by Father Frank Donio and Kate Fowler, and we'll be discussing religious brothers with our guest, Brother Jim Bemisterfer, the Director of Formation for the Palatine Fathers and Brothers, Immaculate Conception Province. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be with you all. It's really great to, to have you here, uh, Brother Jim. Brother Jim and I have now, so disclaimer, we're going to start with the disclaimer oh, that Brother boy. Jim and I have known each other for, we just figured out it's, it's probably 40 years now, which oh, is quite amazing. Quite amazing. We met as, we were uh, teenagers going on vocation retreats for the Palatines uh, and so that was a, a long, long time ago, uh, and we were in formation together. Uh, brother is, uh, is was has had a, a you know an, an amazing uh, amount of things that he has done, uh, great responsibilities, and continues to have great responsibilities within uh, within the community. Uh, serves on our provincial council and the board of the of the Catholic Apostolate Center. So it's great to have you with us, brother. And so uh, maybe. Maybe talk a little bit about about your uh, let's before we get into the specifics and and into the particulars of of the religious brothers. Maybe talk talk about your own vocational journey, some of the things that you have have done in, in your own apostolic work and ministry over over now. Uh, gosh, it's been how many years? I think it's thirty three years of profession this year. Wow. So, all right. Well. Um, I entered in 1986, and um, in all of these years, I, I have my degree from Catholic University in religion, religious education. I was my first assignment was to raise funds for our province, so I was sent to the Palatine Center for Apostolic Causes in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, I was the novena director at St. Jude Shrine for that purpose. From there, I was missioned here to Bishop Eustace. And I started as theology teacher. And then I taught theology and was named the Dean of Men, which is the title we use because we had a Dean of Women and a Dean of Men. We couldn't be co-deans because that would be terrible in the discipline office. Um, so from there, I was made head of school or the headmaster. And I did that for 14 years. And then I was named the novice master and the director of formation for the community. So those are the different ministries I've done. And and that's a unique role being the novice master. It's not something that in a community of priests and brothers that brothers usually usually have. I think you're the first the first in the Palatines to I'm the first be. brother in the community in the society uh, to be named the director of preparatory formation. Yeah. So it's a very responsible role. It's really the 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 significant formative moments of a of, of someone coming into the community. So could you talk a little bit about that, that role and what you do in that role? All right. The role of uh, the director of preparatory formation or novice master, um, it really is to set the foundation for the person's religious life. It prepares them in a unique way for the consecrated life. In our case, as Palatines, through the profession of six promises the three evangelical councils of chastity, poverty, and obedience, and then the three additional of perseverance, the sharing of resources, 
and a spirit of serving. Um, during that, that, in our case, we have two years of preparatory formation, but one of those years is reserved strictly for looking at the consecrated life. Uh, during that time, the candidate is introduced to the foundations of the religious or the consecrated life. They're really synonyms. Uh, the church's new terminology would be consecrated life. And it would be the foundation of prayer because it's ultimately a relationship with the person of Jesus Christ and his church. And so a lot of time is devoted to different forms of prayer, trying to help each candidate figure out how he can grow in his love of the divine. Then there is an in-depth study of the law of our society. Some communities use different terms, rules, constitutions. We use the term law. Um, and then, now in the midst of all of that, and then looking particularly at those six promises that I mentioned, but in the midst of all of that, it's helping the individual candidate to come to understand who he is for himself as a person, who he is becoming as a public member of the church through the profession of the evangelical councils in our society. And then ultimately, how will he minister in this church? That really is the novitiate, and that's really a quick summary of what the experience is about. So, Brother Jim, for some of our listeners who may not know what the distinction is between a religious brother and a priest, could you talk a little bit about that and how someone would discern to become a brother versus a priest? Sure. So a religious brother is a man who enters a religious community, be that a monastic community, a contemplative order, an active apostolic order. And he is looking at the charism of that community, meaning what is their mission? What is their gift to the church that the Holy Spirit has given to their founder? That, so you're trying to, so, so the man would be looking at these communities and saying, I could fit into this. This is what I'm interested in. This is where I feel my natural talents lie. It is in the profession of the evangelical councils, the promises or vows of chastity, poverty, and obedience. That is the essence of the religious brother's life. There is no um, call to holy orders. That's the main, that is the distinction for priesthood. A, a man who would look at a religious community and say, I want to follow God in that charism, but as a ordained member. Those would be the, the major distinctions between the brother and the priest can, the priest in the community. Brother, you, you use the word charism a few times, and we've used, we've, we've thrown that word around on several different episodes of this podcast, but I would be interested to hear from you. How do you define that? And how, how can, what does that mean when we use that word charism? We, we talk about it, we have talked about it in the sense of religious communities and the different charisms that they have. What, what, how, do, how does that factor into play? What does that mean? And how, can, how do we often see them differently? Uh, a charism, by its definition, according to the Catholic Church, would be it is a gift of the Holy Spirit that is given to an individual 
using their own personal talents, their own personal traits, who they are, for the benefit of the church. In the case of Palatines, our founder, Vincent Pilati, on the 9th of January in 1835, had an inspiration. The Holy Spirit inspired him, and he, he was celebrating Mass, and he felt this sense that he needed to, to call together men and women who felt the need to minister in the church by reviving faith, rekindling charity, and involving all members of the church, clergy, consecrated men and women, and the laity. In 1835, that was radical. Today, we think that's almost the norm. But the charism then was validated when the church accepted what St. Vincent Pilati set up. When the church approves, in the case of religious communities, their law, their constitutions, their rule, that's a validation of the charism. And if you've noticed in recent days, Pope Francis has instructed that religious communities, when they're being founded in today's time, it needs the approval of the Holy See, no longer just the diocesan bishop, because he feels that to have a true charism, it can't just be, well, I want to teach, because there are communities that that is their charism, and he feels we can't duplicate the gifts that are already have already been entrusted to the church. When you look at the, we're a community of brothers and priests. Yes. And so when there are communities of brothers, uh, Chris, you, you went to, you went to a school of community of brothers, right? I did. Yes. Uh, the Franciscan brothers of Brooklyn, uh, uh, they minister, uh, in, in, in New York City, but they also I have they, I think they you know the, the the brothers of Brooklyn, but I think there's some of them that are not necessarily in Brooklyn, so they they've kind of spread their wings. But yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I my exp, my exposure to religious brotherhood has yeah really has primarily been uh, through education, um, and not really out kind of like knowing that there was more to that. Uh, really, I opened my eyes when I came to college and. And interacted with uh, brothers at at the university, and of course through the Palatines. Um, so yeah, yeah, def- that has been at least my experience. Yeah. So so that you have these communities of brothers, you have communities of priests and brothers, you have communities of, of brothers that have maybe a a priest that provide that's a part of the community but right. provide sacramentally, and so that could be confusing for people. Brother, could you explain some of that and how that all works? Sure. Um, It goes back to the concept of charism, because that's the the uniqueness of each community. Uh, We'll start, I'll start with the easiest group would be, and I don't mean this in a sense, but all brothers communities, probably the most famous would be the De La Salle Christian Brothers, the brothers founded by St. John Baptist De La Salle. Their true name is the Brothers of the Christian Schools. They were founded strictly as vowed laymen who were primarily founded to teach teachers and then teach young men. Um, They have always retained the concept of they are all lay men who make vows. And they make five vows, chastity, poverty, obedience, 
education, and stability within the community. There are other communities of brothers, uh, the, the um, Hospitaller Brothers of St. John of God, founded by John of God. Their primary ministry would be health care, taking care of those who are um, in great needs. They have some members that are selected to be ordained. They retain the title brother, but they technically are clerics because they've been ordained to holy, to holy orders. But they serve only to minister to the needs of that religious community. They wouldn't be sent to parishes. They would be sent in their own houses to celebrate the liturgy for the brothers. Then there are other communities who, from their foundation, had both laymen and clerics. Example, the Palatines, the Jesuits, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, the Benedictines. Historically, some of those communities began primarily as brother communities who had clerics. Others began primarily as clerics who had brothers. Uh, in our case, as Palatines, we've primarily been um, larger with more priests than we have brothers. At one point in our history, we were almost equal, but that was in around 1910 with our big province in Limburg. Um, so that's kind of the difference of communities. Again, that goes back to the concept of charism. Brother, in your discernment process, was it difficult for you to discern between the call to holy orders and to or to become a religious brother? Or was that something that you knew right away? Kate, I knew right away I didn't want to be a priest. But I didn't know what brothers were. I never met a brother. I was taught by religious sisters, nuns, and I admired their life. I liked the concept that they lived in community. They did a, a common ministry, charism, and they had a prayer life that inspired me. I spoke to them and I said, look, what is there for a boy? Like I, I knew I couldn't be a nun. I wasn't stupid, but I... I didn't feel called to celebrate mass or hear confession. They said, there are brothers. And they told me to look at the De La Salle Christian brothers, because they teach, or the Palatines, because they have both priests and brothers. And they do diverse works, that universal ministry. That's how I chose the Palatines. So what, what do brothers, we've talked about some of the work that you've engaged in apostolic work in ministries that you've engaged in. We've mentioned more broadly education, health care, as some of the works of brothers and the ministries of brothers. What, what are some of the other duties and, and works that, that you can think of that brothers are, have been engaged in over the, over the centuries? I think brothers have been in every profession you can imagine, with the exception of holy orders. So if it's celebrating Mass or hearing confession or celebrating the sacraments, a brother wouldn't do that. They can be plumbers, astronomers. The, the astronomer in charge of the Vatican astronomy is a Jesuit brother. Brother Guy, yeah. Yes. Um, they can be pharmacists, medical doctors, lawyers, missionaries, um, 
porters, you know, taking care of the door when people come as guests. Uh, some of them are cooks. I think anything the religious community needs or that community does, the brother can fill that role. But again, it goes, it's based also off the person's gifts and talents. They're musicians, uh, brothers who write music, sing, play instruments, authors. Well, what, what's the day, daily life of a, of a brother like in, in, I mean, I know we can't generalize because each community right. is, is different you know, somebody in a monastic community and somebody in an apostolic community, it's different way of life. But in general, because I think some people make these, you know, they, they don't necessarily understand kind of the internal reality of religious life. You mentioned good points, Father Frank. There are a lot of diversities, but there's a lot of similarities too. All brothers would say their life is based foundationally on following the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have to do that through prayer. You do that through the celebration each day, if possible, of the Mass, the Liturgy of the Eucharist, the um, recitation of morning prayer, lauds, vespers, evening prayer. Um, each community might have a particular additional prayer they would add here or there, the rosary, and then the ministry, the work. But there's also the, the, the day-to-day communal living, the taking care of our houses, basic things like moms would do and dads would do, laundry, um, cooking, shopping, taking the car to have it inspected, taking the car because the tire is flat, all of those things that's part of our daily life. Where does the term brother come from historically? Why is that the title, would you say? Because I'm called to be a brother to my neighbor. If you think of a brother in a family, a sibling, it's not a hierarchical uh, distinction. It's peer. I'm there as a peer. I'm there to help. And it's a constant reminder of what my life is to be. The title itself tells me how I'm to live. Do I treat everyone I come in contact with as if they were my sibling. You, you mentioned uh, some of, we've, been, we've kind of mentioned it a, a bunch of different places, the different types of communities that exist. But the different types of communities like uh, monastic versus, uh, you know, something else. Could you talk a little bit about for our listeners um, who, you know, I would, I would say even from my perspective, until I was exposed to the fact that there were different types of communities, I just thought they were all the same. And right. so, you know, now I know uh, that there some of them are very different. And, and so could you talk a little bit about maybe the differences between them? Sure. Um, I'll start with probably the oldest group, which would be the monastic communities, the Benedictines. Their life is spent primarily on the grounds of their abbey or their monastery. They make a vow of stability. So where they enter that monastery, that's where they spend their entire life. And remember, as I said to you, every community is a charism. So, so the understanding of the vows is very different according to each custom of the community. For example, the Benedictines, they don't vow chastity, poverty, and obedience by those words. They vow the life of stability, conversion of life, and obedience to the abbot. In conversion of life is poverty and chastity. 
their focus would be to run their abbey or their monastery. A lot of them, I'm thinking of St. Vincent's Arch Abbey in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. On the grounds of their abbey, they have a, a university, a high school, and a seminary. So their monks work in that institution. They may go out to help in the local parishes, but that would not be their main focus. Then there are contemplative communities, which would be monastic, but without the expression of external ministry. For example, the schools, would, it wouldn't exist. I'm thinking of the Trappist, the, or, you know, the Cistercians of the Strict Observance. They would make the same vows as the Benedictine, but they would not have a school. Their time would be spent more in contemplation, in prayer, and in manual labor of their monastery. They follow the, the Benedictine rule, and their motto is ora et labora, work and prayer, a balance of that. But their work would be farming, um, making food products, but not particularly working one-on-one -on -one with other people. Are these the, the groups that make beer? Yes, and, uh, and chocolate. Yeah. Yes, from yes, from New York. Uh, um, I'm sorry, from uh, Massachusetts, Spencer, Massachusetts. And then there are uh, the mendicant orders. They would be the Franciscans, the Dominicans, the Carmelites, where their foundation is fraternity. They gather first and foremost to be a community. So their whole ministry comes out of community. They would set their schedule for their community life and then function out of that. Then there are active communities like the Jesuits who would, they were founded for particular works. They were not founded simply to be together as community, but the community pushes them outside of themselves. Then there are also another whole group called societies of apostolic life. These would be communities of men or women who their main foundation, the reason they came together was for the apostolate, the ministry. So for us as Palatines, our focus, why we come together is to do ministry for the church, the universal works of the church. That's what drives our life. That's, that's kind of our life in a nutshell for those different groups. Yeah. And so you, you've mentioned a number of times community. So, so why is living in community important, not only for a religious brother, but for religious life in general? Well, the whole, the whole definition of the consecrated religious life would be based on community. We come together to be as a support system for one another. We hold one another accountable. And we also encourage one another. We pick one another up when we fall. We, we also give the pat on the back when we need the pat on the back. Um, it also is, it's in the community that we, we follow the promptings of the spirit. It's not just me, Jim Beamister, for fun functioning alone. I always function as a member of the Society of the Catholic Apostolate, the Palatines. Everything I do represents my brother's. And I bring them with me to all the ministry that I do. What is the relationship between a religious brother and the laity? Does that also change according to the order? 
um, and their charism, you know, how does how does the brother work with um, the laity? Well, I think anyone in ministry works with the laity because the church is primarily lay people. Uh, It's you're either technically you're either a member of the clergy or your laity. The consecrated life is not a third group. It's laymen who make vows or or lay women who make vows or ordained men who who also make vows. Um, I think the confusion for many people is that among priests, there are two types of priests. There are diocesan, also known as secular priests, who do not make vows. We hear people criticize them, you know, oh, well, they make a vow of poverty. They do not make a vow of poverty. They're asked to live simple, simply, but they do not vow poverty like a religious order priest would. Um, and you're right, Kate, a lot of it goes back to the charism. So, for example, a Trappist brother would not be working usually with the laity because he is in a, in a cloistered community, whereas a Palatine brother I would be working with anyone I'm, I'm assigned with. So if I'm in a school, I would be working with my lay colleagues. If I'm in a hospital, I'd be working with the lay staff. And it has to be, as I said to you, as a brother, not as an overlord. I'm not the overlord. You've always lived your your life as a brother in a very authentic way and one that is not only true to you as a person, but true to our charism as Palatines. But you you bring not only an integrity, you've always brought a in great integrity to that, but also joy, and and that's that's been kind of a, that's been a hallmark. In fact, I even remember your prayer card for your profession uh, talked about talked about joy and and the witness of joy. So, what's brought you joy as a brother over these now many years? This is the life I always wanted. I wanted to be a member. I wanted to to give my life to Christ. I really did not enter to do any particular work. I loved education, but it wasn't the work that drew me. I wanted to know God better, and I wanted to accept his love. And my community, the Palatines, especially the province of the Immaculate Conception, has embraced me, has loved me, and has nurtured me. And sometimes they've made me do things that were very difficult. I went out of my comfort zone, but it made me grow. And I guess that's where my, I am very happy. I am, I'm, I don't, I don't want to say happy, like, you know, like you're spaced out happy, but I mean, true fulfilled. I am content, but not complacent. There's always moments to grow. There are moments I look at my life and say, I could do that better, or I should do that, or but deep down, it's following where I believe God is leading me. What would you say to someone who's discerning religious life? I think if a person seriously discerning, give it a try. You don't come in, you don't enter and automatically make vows. You don't automatically come in and make vows for life. You come in, uh, I think Chris, you asked this earlier about our formation. We start with a year of postulancy. It's kind of like 
put it in everyday language, it's like dating. Like you're trying this out. Like, is this the right group for me? Is this the right lifestyle for me? And then after that, you enter the novitiate, which is an intense, like, all right, now I'm cutting out all the other dating. Now I'm focusing just on this group. And then there's a commitment, but the commitment's temporary. And then after three to five years or three to six years, depending on each community, then and only then do you make perpetual vows or perpetual consecration. So it's, it, I, I think in some ways we think if you say, I'm interested, you're like signing your life away. No, give it a try. Brother Jim, to, clo- to kind of bring us, bring us all to a close here, what is, what is it that you would want our listeners to walk away from this conversation with in terms of being knowledgeable about um, particularly, you know, religious brother life. What, like, I, I think you already, you touched upon just, just briefly about, you know, um, if you're interested that you should, you should pursue that interest, but, but how can someone t- walk away from this conversation with a renewed sense of, I understand what this life is. I guess if there were one thing I would want people to walk away from uh, about what is, what is a religious brother? is that it's not a step to another lifestyle. It, it, it would be like asking a religious sister, a nun, well, why aren't you a priest? We, we know how absurd that is. It's like you wouldn't say to a married woman, well, why did you marry him? It is a distinct lifestyle that the church has blessed and encourages, and it has a proper role in the church. And it is, in and of itself, a fulfillment of living the baptismal consecration, uniquely through the evangelical councils of chastity, poverty, and obedience. I can look back in my life, and a lot of times you'll say to people, oh, I'm Brother Jim, I'm a Palatine brother. And they'll say, oh, that's nice, Father, you're a brother. Well, that's like... In some ways, it's insulting, but in other ways, it shows how much catechesis we need to do as a church. Um, even when a religious sister will say to me, why did you become a priest? That's almost even worse, because here's a woman who's living the same life as I am living, but as a, as a female or as a male. And I, I, I'm like, that's kind of shocking to me. It is a very fulfilling life. It is a very... Um, full life, and it's completely, it's a complete surrender to the divine call to intimacy with him. And I can't think of anything greater. And for me, it is such a blessing that God called me to this life and that the church has accepted this gift of mine. So I, I would hope that people would, would, who are listening would if they don't know more about it, about brothers, go and look things up, ask other people, but definitely to um, encourage young men who you see and you think you have a call that you, you seem like you could, you could live this life. Encourage them to think of brotherhood. That's beautiful. And I, I think uh, <laughs> as you were talking, I feel like you've gotten the question of, 
So are you going to be priest? Or are you moving yes. on before? I feel like you you have you've gotten that question more than once. Oh, more than and, one. And uh, it's very nice to hear. You know, the I think that that is a really good thing for our listeners to take away is that this isn't a stepping stone. It is. Right. It is. It is a, a choice and uh, one that is made by you know someone not because they want to move on to something else, but it that, is. That's- you know, this latest document from the uh, Congregation for Institutes of Consecrated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life. It's called The Mission and Identity of the Religious Brother in the Church. Because even the official church realizes there's this nebulousness about it. A great book written a few years ago was called Brothers, Blessed Ambiguity. Just the title of the book states the reality. Uh, so I think there's a lot of questions about it. I think people, a lot of people have never met religious brothers. And I think that's part of this. Brother Jim, thank you. Oh, you're for, very welcome. For being, being with us and for taking the time to, to share in, in this way. I think it's going to really be something that is, is going to, to help to catechize, as you said earlier, our, our listeners right. uh, to this beautiful vocation of brotherhood. And thank you for your witness again, and great to have you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Brother Jim. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Um, We encourage our listeners, uh, as Brother said, to to learn more about uh, Religious Brotherhood and and do some investigation on your own. And you can certainly uh, go to our website at catholicapostolatecenter.org to find out more information about consecrated life and brotherhood there. Please be sure to like, review, and subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. You can find this and all of our Center podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, or on our special podcast website, catholicapostolatecenterpodcast.com.